Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Tonight, Ezra chapter 1, uh, here's the context. As we start a new book, we only have three books left and we've finished all the histories of the Old Testament. You guys know that? Uh, the context to this is the Jews have been in captivity. This is where we last, left them last week at the end of Second Chronicles. They went off to captivity. Ezra 1 picks up, they're coming out of captivity. So Ezra is the head of the priests that are with the people that go back to Jerusalem after 70 years in Babylon. Ezra's written in retrospective, just like First and Second Chronicles. They're looking backwards in history and recording what has happened in the past tense. Ezra is the overseeing guy. This is why uh, with First and Second Chronicles, we generally call Ezra the author, but he oversaw a group of researchers and a chroniclers that put that together for the nation as they returned. Um, the team then of priests is responsible for Chronicles, Ezra, and also the book Nehemiah, three of the history books. Um, some people also think that they're the ones that gathered and kept Esther alive when it comes to authorship. Um, similar styles in all the books. Authorship is similar. And the first couple verses of Ezra being the exact same as the last couple verses of Chronicles is a huge indicator that we have the same authors that intended for this to be a continuous history. That means 70 years is not even accounted for by these historians. It's lost time from the perspective of Chronicles and Ezra. In other words, it's 70 years where God just gave them a break. He gave them a Sabbath. It's, it, there's nothing that happens there. Daniel, some of the other books of Babylonian exile, the prophets were still very active during this time. So we get a sense of the history of what happened during that 70 years, but it's in the prophetic books, not in the histories. That said, Judah took idol worship into Babylon and God vows to end it. He, he wants to be done with this idol. Don't you feel like when you read through Kings and Chronicles, you're like, how many times are they going to go back to idols? The good news is when they come out of Babylon, they're done with idol worship. Ezra 1 is going to explain why. I think we get some real clues as to why the Jewish people never go back to idol worship until this day. Something happened in Babylon that made the, the temptation of idol worship eradicated. And the Jews never fall into that sin again. They never go back to it. We get prophecies about how God's going to do this. Uh, he mentions an agent. So before we start in Ezra 1, could you go to Isaiah 41 in your Bibles? And I would just keep a finger in Isaiah all night tonight. Because the prophetic element here is going to be really key to understanding what's going on in this book. So Isaiah chapter 41. Um, God calls his shots. This is like Babe Ruth pointing at the which outfield he's going to send the ball into for a home run. God absolutely calls his shots. Isaiah 41, 25, God says through the prophet, I've raised up one from the north, and he shall come, and from the rising of the sun he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as through mortar, and as the potter treads the clay. At the end of the Babylonian exile, God's going to raise the somebody up that's going to eradicate or decimate as, as one going through mortar, mortar. He's going to absolutely stomp through the Babylonian captors. 
and take over. There will be a governmental change. Then if you go to Isaiah 43, flip forward a page or two, verse 14, the Lord says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, one who purchases, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans, who rejoice in their ships. Babylon's going to get destroyed, and he even names the group of people that'll do it. The, the Chaldonians are the prequel to the Persian, the Medo Persian Empire. So he calls what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and we're going to see a lot more of that prophecy tonight. This was given to, before the Babylonians were even an empire. So when this was written in Isaiah, it was 150 years before these events. And God absolutely calls every single shot at what happens historically. And that alone, Jesus says, should give us pause about how powerful God is. If we have the law and the prophets, we should have enough to know who's God and who's Lord over this world. And so we look at Ezra chapter 1, I think as Ezra did, and we see that this is a fulfillment of prophecy on every single line. And this should give us faith that our God is powerful able and completely in control of the destiny of nations. He's the God of nations. Um, so verse one of Ezra chapter one, again, keep your finger back in Isaiah. We'll jump back there a few times tonight. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and we'll stop there for a sec. This is the end of captivity. Up to here, this is word for word the same as the ending of Second Chronicles. And if you, you flip back a page, you can see that. Uh, it's written as a continuation. Cyrus is not a Hebrew name. It's a Persian name. So in the Persian, it means the possessor of fire. And, or if you read it, the name Cyrus is also a Babylonian name. In the Babylonian, it's the holder of fire or the sun. So he is the light, he's the sun. Uh, and we know about the Medo-Persian Empire and the, the emperors, including Cyrus, that they worship a god named Marduk. We haven't seen Marduk yet in the Old Testament. So we're going to learn something about Marduk because it tells us how Cyrus is thinking and why he might have written this proclamation. It's easy when you read the proclamation, if you kind of glance ahead, to think that Cyrus is worshiping Yahweh, but he's not. So how does that work? How can he honor Yahweh in a proclamation, but he's actually not a Yahweh follower? And so for me, this is worth digging into. The Marduk, if Cyrus is the possessor of fire or the holder of the sun, Marduk is the son of the light in the Medo Persian traditions. He's radiance itself, and Cyrus is a holder of that light. And some people believe Marduk is a Persian version of the Egyptian god Ra. Ra is the sun god, and the reason pharaohs thought they were gods is they were simply containers of the light, and any thought or decision they had was a decision of Ra or of Marduk. And therefore, they were gods. They were the embodiment of the god. It's easy to think that when everybody's bringing you peeled grapes, right? And from your birth, you're treated like you're a god. Humans get this weird thing where we actually think we are. Uh, we believe what people treat us as. So here's the weird thing about Marduk. And, and again, this you can go a lot deeper if you want to. But Marduk, early in his history, part of what helped him rise to power is he beat the serpent. So again... 
a lot of these false religions are weird de derivations of Genesis. The serpent's name was Tiamat, or the, in other traditions, the serpent's name was Sin, literally S-I-N, Sin. And Tiamat or Sin was subdued by Marduk, and the son of the light, or the angel of light, in subduing Sin became God himself. So Marduk wasn't, even in Persian tradition, wasn't the high god. He was a lower god. In fact, early on, he was the god of death or the god of the, the underworld. And Marduk was able to rise out of that lower status as one of the lower gods um, because there were some historical events that happened. And, and the, initially, the Hittites called this god Santa. I'm not kidding. Um, and then another name for the, the Assyrians called this god Nurgle. Um, again, you could think of better names, but he Nurgle itself does not sound like the over god, right? He's the under god. He was the ruler of the underworld, and he was a lesser god. But as Assyria rose, he rose in power too. And he's the only god of the Assyrians to escape total destruction. In the tradition, the Assyrian Empire and army was totally wiped out, if you remember the story of Hezekiah. But that had theological implications for these false god empires. When Sennacherib's army was wiped out, the only god that they thought survived was the god of death, the god of the underworld, Nurgle, Santa. And so this god, that they then they raised up this god and thought it was the only one that survived. Well, this religion spreads. Nebuchadnezzar promotes him to the most high god. And this is the, and again, I, I have a, I'm going somewhere with all this. Follow me on this. When Nebuchadnezzar promoted him, he added Marduk to be the gods of all other gods. He became the most high god for all of these historical reasons. The other reason Nebuchadnezzar loved Marduk is if you believe in a, a light god or a radiance god, any light Nebuchadnezzar gave off made him god himself. Which, when we get into the stories about Nebuchadnezzar, you know he built a giant statue and wanted everybody to bow down to that statue. If he's a Marduk worshiper, he's likely making a statue of himself because he's the physical representation of this god. Otherwise, Marduk doesn't have a symbol or an icon. You don't make idols of Marduk. You make idols of the ones that contain Marduk. Does this make sense? So... This, these wars between the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, what would happen in each of these situations is one empire would conquer another. We saw a lot of this in Kings. And if I conquer your nation, I take your God, I bring the articles of your God, I bring them to my God's temple, and I make them bow down before my God. So it was like a big, huge game of stuffed animals. Right? I'd steal your stuffed animal and I'd make them come to my stuffed animals tea parties and I'd, and I'd arrange them that way. And you know the story with the Philistines where they tried to do this with the ark and then the statue kept tipping over? Like Yahweh has not had party to this. And Yahweh doesn't conquer other nations. When he pushed the Canaanites out of, of the promised land, he didn't take their idols to come and worship at his temple. In fact, he commanded his people to never do that. Um, so, but there's a major problem with this. Theologically, we're moving on into a new age historically because one of the things that the followers of Marduk realized is if I take your God and make it bow to my God, I've created a generational enemy in doing that. It's bad governance because now you have every reason to teach your kids that someday we will rise up and our God will fight against this God. So the Babylonians weren't 
They were part of the Syrian empire. They were born out of that. Only they thought their God was better than the gods. So they actually fought the Assyrians because they wanted their God to be elevated. What if instead of doing that, um, and that doesn't serve gods, what if instead of have it doing that, what if Marduk comes along? And this is the spirit of this age. Instead of telling your God to bow to my God, I actually tell you, you can go ahead and worship your God. But I know that my God's higher than your God. The symbol of Marduk is the spade. It shows up on our playing cards. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a, an image of a spade that would be used to bury the hatchet, literally to get rid of old resentments. So the spirit of Marduk over time would be changed with every empire that takes over. Here's the beauty of Marduk. Marduk is whoever's the emperor of that nation. So when we go from Cyrus to Xerxes, Marduk changes his mind. This is one of the things the Jews did in response to this, is they would say Yahweh is never changing. And it was a response to the spirit of this age. That if this God changes their mind, if they allow all these religions to coexist, they're all true, they're all real, we don't deny or, co- and, or fight with any religions whatsoever, there's no boundaries between them, but we all know darn well that whatever I think rules. That's Marduk. And when empires filled themselves with this attitude, it creates a very unique condition for Cyrus to make this proclamation. It's within his religious belief system to acknowledge Yahweh is real and he's true, but back in the back of his mind, he's just humoring the Israelites. But politically, now he doesn't have fighting with the Israelites. He doesn't have uprisings and rebellions. This attitude becomes the way to run an empire from here on out in history. Everything changes in this sense. False gods will change their mind all the time because they're dependent on humans telling other humans what their false god says. Yahweh is never open to that. And he hasn't changed his mind since the inception of Jewish tradition, in part because Yahweh's not the invention of man. He's actually the living God. And this is an interesting thing. So as a Marduk allows other gods to continue existing, he also has authority over the other gods. So the god of the underworld also became the god of the sea when he conquered the sea people. And when he conquered the land people, he became the god of the sands and the earth. And when he conquered the people that worshiped the sky god, he took on the power of the sky god. So Marduk's like the, the, the false religion here, and I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to convince you to follow Marduk, but it's very different than Baal worship, where I just worship whatever I want because it'll give me power. The worship of Marduk is a very different and I think more insidious false religion because it is taking the power of other gods and one god claiming he actually has the power over everything, not just certain areas like the balls or the false idols, but everything. So you can see where after 70 years of living in this world, the Jewish people would come to a conclusion. False gods are just false and they're just fake. So in in the late Babylonian era, Marduk becomes the king of the gods. He conquers the gods. He's the god of crops. He's the god of storms. He's the god of everything. Or one perceptive of Marduk worship is he's the father of all gods. It's the beginning of ecumenicalism on earth. This idea that we should, you know, the Greeks take Marduk and they embrace him. They just give him a different name because Marduk changes. 
So when the Greeks come over, they told their people, it's not Marduk anymore, we're going to call this god Zeus. He's the father of all gods. Didn't start out as the top god, but he organized a rebellion against the top god, and that rebellion won. And now he's in charge of everything. Sound familiar? So this angel of light takes on the most high God. And in all these false religions, the story is that they won. And Zeus being an under God becomes the over God and the God of storms, the God of heaven and the God of earth. Everything under one roof. You can worship Aphrodite. You can worship uh, Athena. You can worship all these other gods. But we all know Zeus is the most high God. And they build a temple to Zeus. But Zeus might be only one city, but all the other cities bow to that city. And you can continue the worship of these other gods. This is the difference from the balls to this new era of, of idol worship. The Romans did not get rid of this system. It's very good for running large empires. The Romans simply renamed the god to Jupiter. New god name, new title, same father of all gods. Jupiter was not the top god to start out with. He challenged the top god, disobeyed, and ran an insurrection against the top god. And he became the angel of storms, the angel of light, Jupiter being the lightest star in the sky. He became the reflection of light to the whole world because that's what he did. You got smaller versions of this too, but the influence spreads. The Norse people, this guy was called Odin, god of storms, father of all gods, ran a rebellion, all of these things. He's the gatherer of all religions under one roof. We can all live together if everybody just understands that Zeus is on top, Jupiter's on top. Everything else is okay in that world. Uh, I would argue this tentative peace was always fragile. Right, And you look at that in Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Norse mythology, it's the same thing. There's a tentative hold on this power of the Father God. Norse mythology is interesting. They argue Ragnarok. Every so often, Odin will lose all power and chaos will ensue. Full war and conflict will happen. And they just embrace this idea. But really, whatever leaders on top decides they want to go to war, and it's Ragnarok time. It doesn't, there's no consistency to these gods. They're, they're, they're human in nature because they're human in creation. However, as long as everything's at peace for now, we're good to go um, and, until anyone challenges the leader. Then Ragnarok, everything falls apart. I would argue the same spirit is alive and well on earth today. It's called coexist. If only we all just get along Everything will be good as long as we listen to whoever's in power when that's said. And if you don't listen to whoever's in power, all chaos will ensue. You should fear the conflict more than the peace that's the fragile peace that exists. So there's this idea. Cyrus worships Marduk. We have to know that going into this proclamation. He claims that Marduk tells him who to attack. Um... We know that one of the conflicts Cyrus had historically was with the last Babylonian king, uh, Nabodi, Nab, I'm not going to say this right, Nabonidus, actually bowed to the other god, the moon god. Moon god, again, the name is Sin, not Marduk necessarily. Um, because Nabonidus bowed to Sin, it was okay for Cyrus to come and conquer Babylon. Problem is, Babylon's a big city. It has big walls. Archaeologically, these walls were massive. Um, so the Babylonians as a city largely worshipped the moon god. Uh, this in also explains Jewish behavior here. If you like idol worship, why not go to the city that is the fullest expression of idol worship on the planet? And 
Um, when we get to Daniel, we'll do a deep dive into Babylonian religion. For now, I'm just going to say this is the icky stuff. This is where we started to fear spiders and snakes and dark places because they would put their treasures into dark places so that the darkness could envelop them, right? And that's going to be mentioned in the chapter two. To avoid, avoid spirit, future spiritual battles, Cyrus or Marduk rebuilds the temple of sin and all the ancient cults in Babylon. So he conquers the city and then actually spends money to rebuild all of their religions because he doesn't want human conflict. That's the enemy of prophets. So this idea of let's make money by getting along. Um, and again, this gets written in multiple places. The records of Marduk that I'm mentioning come out of the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Era, and the Marduk Adil, which is an Assyrian record of Marduk. So all of these nations that are trading power, they're in the same religious system. They just have a political conflict where different cities are taking priority. Um, so this becomes an inconstant religion. It changes with every king, with every empire, and whatever the king thinks Marduk is saying is what Marduk is saying. It's very unstable. Cyrus, a believer in Marduk, we know that he is because of his own writings, easily can accept that a direction of a nation can change. He can easily accept under this theology that spiritual wars aren't worth fighting. He easily accepts under this theology that Marduk is not to be trusted entirely, like he might turn on Cyrus at any moment, and that Marduk is holding over a tentative piece of all the other gods. So he actually believes in Yahweh. Yahweh's real. Yahweh exists. And Marduk doesn't want a rebellion from Yahweh. And that's the, the perspective here. And four, his theology accepts that other gods can and do speak to Cyrus as an agent of Marduk. So it is reasonable that if the Jewish God has an issue, the Jewish God would talk to Cyrus about the issue with Marduk. That somehow or another, humans are communicators between the gods. Again, we know more about Greek mythology because of public schools. And that's very common in Greek mythology, too, if you think of how humans were kind of avatars or agents. And gods would pick their favorite humans to do this. So all of this is easily accepted under this new kind of um, uh, not-God thinking, which I would call the evil spirit thinking. Uh, it's a new kind of development on planet Earth that this kind of religion would emerge. So Cyrus is an agent of Marduk sees the Jewish God as helping him conquer Babylon. This is important. All of this to say, we start this thing saying, and it says in our first verse there, um, in the first year Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be filled. All of this is fulfilling prophecy. So, like, looking back and seeing this prophecy, is, I think one of the coolest parts about Ezra, how this happens, that the Lord, Yahweh, very specifically, it should be capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Well, how does that happen if he doesn't worship Yahweh? He doesn't worship Yahweh, but he believes in Yahweh. So when he feels like he's hearing from Yahweh, he doesn't deny that or back off of that. We saw back at the end of Chronicles that when the Egyptian king said, I'm listening to Yahweh right now, that the king of Israel should have taken the Egyptian was his name uh, Necro or whatever, should have taken the guy seriously because he was, it turns out, doing what the Lord wanted him to do. So here we got Cyrus hearing from the Lord too. Had to make the Jewish people jealous because they haven't heard from the Lord recently. Um, but they do have prophets speaking. So what Cyrus has in front of him is 
uh, multiple sources of authority. And I'm going to argue that um, from the scriptures, we can see five or six. How many do I got here? Oh, exactly seven different, very clear prophecies that as Cyrus has just conquered Babylon, he gets to see these things. So if you're ready to bounce around, keep your thumb in Isaiah 44, go to Jeremiah 25. And we're going to see, and I think, again, this is when it says by the mouth of Jeremiah, this is what the, the, the Jews would have brought to Cyrus and said, hey, we want you to look at this. And so he, he, he would show them these things. Jeremiah 25, uh, verse 11, these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So he has a clear prediction of Babylon's end and the end of captivity put in front of him. Verse 12, and it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation says the Lord for their iniquity. So Cyrus is thinking Marduk is helping him out, but there's nothing in his theology that would deny that maybe Yahweh was teaming up with Marduk to make this conquest happen. And that the Lord of the, the God's sin is being beaten by two different gods. So at this point, when he sees a prophecy like that, Cyrus is thinking, something spiritual helped me conquer Babylon because it's the unconquerable city, and I just conquered it. So he's acknowledging that the gods have helped him doing it, only Yahweh's claiming some credit for that, which makes sense because inside the city of sin, Babylon, you have the people of God, Yahweh, under captivity in that city. So why wouldn't the captive God help Markel defeat the city? You got an attack from the outside, attack from the inside. Markel. Marduk, not Markle. Sorry, Mark. Whoever's out there listening by the name of Mark. Exact timing. So many things could go wrong. But number one, Cyrus has a clear prediction of the fulfillment of this prophecy after 70 years. We're, it's, don't have to do a lot of deep diving on this prophecy. Number two, a clear word of how Babylon would be taken by Cyrus. Cyrus is thinking he came up with a great strategy. But 150 years prior, God said exactly how this would happen. That would be stunning to hear. Isaiah 44, flip back to that. Verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. All right? This would help him take Babylon. Isaiah 45, verse 5 and this is the Bible study they brought to Cyrus, which made him make the proclamation. I am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is no other. There is no God beside me, and I will gird you, though you have not known me. Two things that are going to happen to fall Babylon. Whoever is in charge of it doesn't know Yahweh yet. And the way they're going to beat it is by drying up a river. This is exactly what happened. Um, Babylon, this is part of knowing the city of Babylon, it was considered indefeatable. It was the titanic of cities. You cannot defeat Babylon. Why? Its walls are too thick to barge on. You could drive a chariot on top of their walls. A four-horse chariot you could drive on top of their walls. So big, thick walls. You can't batter ram them. You can't build a ramp. They had great science, detailed mathematics, architecture, calendar systems. They invented the zodiac system that we have today. 300-foot-high ziggurats are built under massive peace under Babylon. The Eternaki is one that some people think is the hanging gardens of Babylon. One of the wonders of the world. This city was something to behold. The gates of Babylon were absolutely huge and they were frescoed, 
right? So a season of unimaginable wealth and bounty. They had crops that they grew inside the city. So you can't siege Babylon because they've got a river going right through the city that feeds interior agriculture that's on ramped systems. A lot like we picture the Hanging Garden. They'll never run out of water. They'll never run out of food. Go ahead and try to siege them. It's the unconquerable city. Well, how did Cyrus, as he's thinking, as he's stirred up to go attack Babylon, he had to be thinking of all this. How do you beat this city? What Persia had was an incredible workforce of slaves. They had all the humans you could possibly want, but there had to be doubt that was stirred inside of Cyrus when he's convinced that a god has told him to go attack this city. So he knows that. When he hears this prophecy, he also knows that what it took to beat Babylon was this. He took those hundreds of thousands of workers and they dug a ditch to reroute the, the river to not go through Babylon anymore. And as they rerouted the river around Babylon, it dried up the city. And lo and behold, the embarrassment of the architects of the city, they didn't put the gates to the bottom of the riverbed. So when they dried up the river, they saw a road going right through and into the city. And they simply marched in and everything from Babylon was conquered from the inside out. So this is what actually happened. So then the God says things like, I will dry up your waters as a threat to Babylon. Okay, if you're Cyrus, you're taking this seriously now, right? He just called his shots. Here's number three, a clear word that God will take a side, that Yahweh will pick sides when he does this. Back to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, I will turn away your captivity, Babylon, or Israel, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place where I caused you to be carried and take away captive. So all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me is a mirrored phrase from this prophecy. Cyrus has heard what the scriptures had to say. God clearly, Yahweh at least, if I'm a Marduk worshiper and God says, I take the side of the Israelites, then when they conquer the city and Babylon falls, the Israelites aren't competing with Cyrus in that effort. And so he knows when it will happen. He knows how it'll happen. He knows that God is clearly on the side of the Israelites. So now you got a choice to make as a ruler. Do you keep the Israelites as captives in your city, knowing that God is going to release them? And then make your god Marduk be at conflict with this god? Or do you just team up with this god and let him go? So this is a really interesting thing. Number four. This is, where, this, is, this is the kicker. If you're Cyrus and you got these slate captive people coming into your office saying, Hey, welcome to your new leadership position. We want to show you these texts from 150 years ago. Listen to this one. Isaiah 44. Go back to Isaiah 44. Verse 28. God names Cyrus. Thus says, that said of Cyrus, he's my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Guess what Cyrus is going to do? He's shown this before he makes the proclamation, but he's told you're going to let the Israelites go. And this is a 150 year old text that named you by name as the one to do this. Okay, if you believe in Marduk and you believe Yahweh is the God of the Israelites, what are you going to do here? Um, 
the Lord had stirred him out. I think to some degree, as Cyrus had these things brought to him, the Spirit of God has already stirred him up according to the scriptures. They've opened his eyes to see this. So when these prophecies are brought to him, he's ready to hear them. The, the word stirred up in the Hebrew, from the Hebrew Chaldee, means to be hot or ardent. He's been heated up and ready to hear the word. And if he's the possessor of fire, and that's literally his name, and, and the God heats up the possessor of fire, that's an interesting turn of phrase if you put those belief systems together. Daniel has established the school of Magi in Babylon. Uh, it is an active school. We know from the stories of Daniel that it's fairly close to the throne. It would not be hard for the, the Magi to gain audience with the new ruler because they're a authority structure in the city. Uh, the Jewish people had standing at this point because of Daniel, because of those stories. They were not under persecution. A lot of them were doing very well. And we know this from commercial texts, hundreds of them, where we see Jewish people taking loans and making loans in Babylon prior to the conquest of the Medo-Persian Empire. They were doing okay for themselves. And they were not lesser citizens in Babylon. They'd gained status, position, property, houses. They'd made a home for themselves. That we'll get back to later. Likely, these people of authority and standing in Babylon are the ones that show these texts to Cyrus. They bring them in. And so the Lord stirred him up so that he made, he's convicted enough by what he's seen that he's going to make this proclamation. All this just to open Cyrus's eyes. The whole purpose of this prophecy is that he can see it. And in some ways, you know, in reading this, he's seeing that this God Yahweh had a lot to do with the conquest of Babylon. As he called it well before Babylon was even an empire, he called that this would all happen. Reasonable faith is what God's asking of Cyrus. Not a big leap of faith, but reasonably saying that, okay, this is a little too coincidental. Maybe I should pay attention to it. Even if Cyrus is not a Yahweh worshiper, he is a Yahweh regarder. He regards Yahweh as powerful because of these texts. I'd say five, just the accuracy of the whole thing. So back in Isaiah 45, we're going to look at like, Everything was called here. And, and I, the first time I heard this, I was just struck by like, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't, nobody had taught me the, how relevant this was. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, Isaiah 45, 150 years before Cyrus takes Babylon, whose right hand I have held to subdue the nations before him and I will loose the loins of kings. Uh, if you know how Nebuchadnezzar died, uh, that's relevant. Um, the, the Nebuchadnezzar loved to do this. He would take smaller kings and then he'd make them captives and some of them he would chain up and keep in his throne room so that he could say he was the king of kings. So he'd turn other kings into his servants. It's exactly what he did to the Israelites. To open before him the two levied gates either end of the river and the gates shall not be shut. You're going to, you're, you're going to open them but they're not actually shut. You don't have to break the gate. You're just going to go under it. Um, Cyrus used those river gates to do it. This is how that happened. Verse 2, I will go before you and I will make the crooked places straight. The river here with Babylon is winding. But the, the route that Cyrus made was a straightened version of the river. I will break in pieces the gates of brass. I will cut and sunder the bars of iron. Um, those that marched from the inside out were able to break all the gates and open them up. And I will give you the treasures of darkness. 
This is where Babylonian treasures were hidden. Again, God calls this before this was even a thing on the planet. And hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, which call you by name, am the God of Israel. God even calls the fact that he's calling Cyrus by name so that Cyrus recognizes the prophecies about him. Like, this is the simplest, most direct prophecy we really get out of all the prophets. And it's because he's talking to a non-believer. And just so you get this, Cyrus, verse 4, for, my, for Jacob, Israel, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have called you by name, and I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. Even though you don't worship me and follow me, I need you to know that I'm God of the Israelites. In some way, I think Cyrus would have grown up feeling that there's something about his life that's been blessed. Like there's something that stirs his heart because he knows, I don't know if you know this, you know somebody's looking out for you. You know there's something beyond what you can see and hear. And I think when Cyrus, when they brought these things into him, there's a piece of him that knew this, that his whole life something's been holding him up. Or maybe he rose to the kingship with extraordinary miraculous means. And there's a history with Cyrus that we don't get in this text. God has made hundreds of prophecies like this throughout the scriptures, and he's kept every single one of them. And I've just read you four or five that were directly about Cyrus. How many more prophecies are in the scriptures so that we can read them and gain a reasonable faith? We're not putting our faith in nothing. We're putting our faith in a God that calls every single shot, and he's right 100% of the time. And, and those verifications are not just for Cyrus to know that he's God. They're also there for us Gentiles to know that he's God. Sixth thing. And we'll get to verse 2. Cyrus had warning about striving with God on this. So this is the part of the prophecy we don't always get. He's actually warned in Isaiah 45 to not mess around with this. So he knows that it's God. He knows that he's been named by name. He knows that the year that it would happen is called, 70 years after exile. The means of conquest is named and explained. But then he also gets this, Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe to him, Cyrus, who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Cyrus, you can't prophesy all of this because you weren't even born yet. So do you really want to mess with the God that called all these shots? Or verse 9 to 10 is saying, woe to you, Cyrus, if you argue with me about letting the Israelites go. So God's will is that 70 years is up. They need to go back to the promised land. And I think Ezra, again, by saying by the mouth of Jeremiah, Ezra is assuming that we've read Jeremiah, which, sorry, we haven't read that yet. And, and, and in addition, I feel like he's assuming we've read Isaiah 44, 45. The end of Isaiah, there's three major prophecy sections. This is one of them, and it's all about this situation. I also, on, a, on the alternative of the woe, he also has number seven. He's told what to do. So you don't have to know Yahweh, just on this one point, pay attention, and these Jewish people, you need to do this one thing. Isaiah 45, verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness, Cyrus, and I will direct all his ways, and here's what he needs to do. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price, not for reward, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. All of this is just a tool for God. 
actually forgot this isn't even a big deal. This is just an instrument that he uses to carry out his view of history and how it should be. So now we have context. This is, I think, if we go to the prophets, this is the good stuff that they would have brought to Cyrus and said, here's what our God says to you, and we've been holding on to this message for 150 years. So we just want to deliver it now. I think there's some, isn't there a time travel thing where somebody leaves a letter for themselves? And I don't know. I read too much science fiction. Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. Where did he get that from? We just read Jeremiah. That's where he gets that line from. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Where did he get that from? From Isaiah, where we just read. So he just puts it right in his proclamation. Again, this doesn't contradict his theological upbringing, and we don't have to think Cyrus was a Jew or a Yahweh-following person for him to write an edict to the Israelites that honors their God. That's actually what he did, and he didn't just do it with the Israelites. He did it with all the captive nations that the Babylonians had brought into captivity. He let them all go. And so we see a lot of that in other records. Here's an interesting position. Um... God has called his rise, Cyrus. He, call, he claims that Israel is his. He claims to be on Cyrus's side as long as he carries out his pleasure. And he gives him a woe if he defies it. And he tells him exactly what to do to not defy it. And Cyrus then does it. Cyrus, even in his proclamation, puts Lord God of heaven. Um, and he's given all the kingdoms of the earth, which implies dominion over the earth and the heavens. That's a Jewish claim that Cyrus is putting in there. Of course, Marduk just conquered Babylon, which means Marduk then also has the, that Yahweh is an aspect of Marduk. So if Yahweh had all that control, now Marduk has that too. That's how Cyrus would think of that. But Yahweh still has it. It's still, he's an underling of Marduk, but he still has control of those things. Yahweh Elohim. So he uses, when it says the Lord in all capital letters, that's the unspeakable name of the Jewish God. And so they didn't use vowels, they just used consonants. Uh, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim is the Jewish Godhead. Elohim is a plural word. Um, so it is Yahweh the Godhead. Uh, not necessarily a follower, but he does, there's no question in this edict that he's at least honoring Yahweh Elohim the way the Jews would do it. Um, uh, and the whole idea that the heaven and earth has given me um, all the kingdoms of the earth. Again, Isaiah 45, uh, 5, uh, he reads that J God says, I am the Lord Yahweh, there is no other, there's no God beside me. I will gird you though you have not known me. Obviously, in the proclamation, Cyrus doesn't agree with everything he's read because he doesn't repeat that language, though he's heard it. Um, but So there's a concert here. The Persians paid heed to prophets from other religions, especially when the prophets were right. Their thinking was, why tick them off? We just want taxes. So why would we anger other gods if we believe they're real? Um, frankly, this is the, the rule of empire that the Romans take over. Um, their attitude is more, who cares what you think religiously? We have soldiers. And that was kind of the Roman attitude is we rule and you can worship as you please. In fact, Herod expanded the Jewish temple. So you have two secularized religions that actually build the second temple. The idea of God of heaven, well, God told him that, Isaiah 45, 18. Who says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who's established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it but he inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. Under Marduk worship, that's cool. 
You may be created the heavens and the earth, but Marduk's now, now in charge of you. The underling God has conquered you, clearly, because you're captives in Babylon. So they don't even have a problem with Yahweh being the creator God in Marduk worship. That's something they can easily fit in. So I keep saying he follows Marduk, and I want to give some evidence for that, too. Um, this is Cyrus writing, in his own writing. He says, of this period of history, I returned all of these people to their sacred cities. Jerusalem's the sacred city. Israelites, go rebuild Jerusalem. He did this with all religions. The sanctuaries across the river Tigris, whose shrines had earlier become dilapidated, the gods who lived therein, and I made permanent sanctuaries for all of them. I collected together all of their people, and I returned them to their settlements. I returned them unharmed to their cells in their sanctuaries that made them happy. Again, the Persians had this new approach. If we want to rule an empire, our people should be happy. And if worshiping these gods make them happy, have at it. It's truly that coexist kind of secularist attitude. May all the gods that I return to their sanctuary every day before Bel and Nebu ask for a long life for me and mention my many good deeds. And here's the other thing. He wanted them to say to Marduk, quote, say to Marduk, my Lord, this, Cyrus the king who fears you. So he wanted the Jews to pray to Yahweh on, and, and have Yahweh talk to Marduk on his behalf. So this is the part that the Jews don't put into their record. This is the part that Cyrus writes from his perspective, and he made a number of these proclamations to a number of different religions. So he didn't doubt Yahweh. He actually wanted Yahweh on his side, and he knows that Yahweh picks sides. So why not have all the gods on your side and be a true follower of this Father God that wants a peace between everybody? Practically speaking, he also has practical reasons. As the Persians move in, it's really hard in the ancient world to build new housing. Like, it's a major endeavor. So if all the Persians are moving in and they want some extra apartment space, it's nice to get some people out. So you port out the Israelites and a lot of those nice apartments open up. Now there's housing availability in the nicer parts of town. So this export of high-ranking folks actually makes space in the city. Uh, there's an uh, archaeological find called the Cyrus Cylinder, where I just read from. It's his record of this era. And it records the undoing of all these captivities and the release of them. And it also mentions the moving in of the Persians. So they brought in their own governance structure. Politically speaking, the Jewish homeland is not productive right now. It's been unfarmed largely because the people that were left behind did not do a good job of using it. So God wanted the land to have rest. Largely, it's unsettled territory right now when it comes to agriculture and herding, which is not good for the Persians because if you own this territory, why not have it bear fruit and pay taxes? So politically speaking, sending the people who love the land back to the land, maybe you'll get better taxes out of it versus people who kind of resent being there. Um, financially then, uh, if they're happy and they're on a mission and they're serving Yahweh and he gets better taxes out of Canaan, good for them, he's getting more taxes and that's all he wants. Same with the Romans. Um, and then he puts it all in writing. A reference to citing their source, this is a decree that was passed in 538 B.C., about 500 years before Christ. And then here's verse 3. Who's among you amongst all his people? This is a general summons. Any and all Jews. In other words, he doesn't quite know who they are anymore. A lot of them have assimilated. 
most of them bowed before Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Remember that story? Only a few of them said, no thanks. Almost all the Jews have gone full on with idol worship. So you would say God would have every right to like eradicate everybody but Daniel and his friends at this, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he be just and just leaving him there? But this is a massive redemption story. He's called out his people and they have a chance to repent and turn back to Yahweh and throw behind them bowing to statues. Um, it's also conditional. Who is among you among all his people is a question. Who wants to stand for Yahweh? The implication here is you don't have to. It's a decree and a calling, but if you don't want to go back to Jerusalem, you don't have to go back to Jerusalem. So it's kind of an open-handed form of governance. We did not see that from Babylon or Assyria or the Hittites or the Amalekites or the Amorites or the Edomites. We didn't see this from the Canaanites. We didn't see this from anybody, even the Egyptians. This is just this open-handed kind of governance. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. This is interesting. He is God. He didn't have to put that in there, but he puts it in there to give full respect back to the Jewish people, which is in Jerusalem. Verse 4, whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Even those people who don't go back to Jerusalem, please support your fellow Jews that are. And if they got gold and silver and goods and livestock, huge indication they've done pretty well for themselves in over 70 years. A lot like the Jews did in Egypt. They multiplied in Egypt. They thrived in Egypt. That was the problem that the Pharaoh had with them. He was worried they would take over Egypt. And again, there's certain living under the Old Testament law has certain benefits that have nothing to do with your faith. They just are good policies to live by, especially the health code. So let him go up. Hopefully, this is another connection. It's the opposite connection of, of what we saw with Pharaoh. In Exodus 6.11, um, God says, go and speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say, let the children of Israel go out of this land. So God's word went to Pharaoh in very similar ways as God's word went to Cyrus, but with very different outcomes. And, and you wonder at some level, when God's word went to Pharaoh, it result, resulted in a hardened heart, Exodus 8, 8.32. In fact, in Exodus, over 10 times, Pharaoh had a hard heart. And there's, there's 10 plagues. So you see that he has a hard heart with every one of these plagues. It's almost like God gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And so when we get the passage where this example of Exodus might have also been shown to Cyrus, here's what happens if you don't let God's people go when he says to let them go. And they stayed with Egypt for a long time, just like they were with Babylon for a long time. But when God says, let my people go, verse 2, let them go, <laughs> because there's problems if you don't, Cyrus. Do you really? And here's what happened in Exodus. Cyrus doesn't doubt the history. He doesn't mention it. But he does let him go and he acknowledges Yahweh, Elohim of Israel. He is God. And I think we could, knowing Marduk worship, and he wouldn't put this in because it doesn't elevate the, Egypt, the, the Israelites like he wants to, but he is God in, for the Israelites, but not for Cyrus. And that would be the Marduk worship thing. So he honors Yahweh. He does it in writing. He does it with a proclamation. There's a blessing that's going to come with this for Cyrus. And Cyrus's reign is largely blessed. Uh, further 
Persian empires have some issues, namely when they fight the Greeks. Um, but for Cyrus, there is an expansion of empire and a blessing of empire that God takes credit for in the prophecies. He raised this person up for a purpose, which is this. So, and another point here. The Jewish people are the only people on earth, and I, I think the hope of this is stunning. Both instances of Egypt and Persia, God says, let my people go, and the ruler has a choice to make, and with the word, that ruler lets them go, and they become a sovereign nation. They get self-rule. And of all the people on the planet, when people lose self-rule, their culture tends to disappear. With the Jewish people, when they lose self-rule, their culture seems to coalesce and come back to God. Of all the people on the earth, no one has lost sovereignty and maintained a culture continuously, ever. And you may argue, what about Native Americans? Well, they have reservations, which are arguably good or bad, historically different discussion, but they've maintained sovereignty on those reservations, and they've kept a sliver of their old culture. But the Jewish people have lost all sovereignty for generations, and three times in history, they've been granted sovereignty with the word of another ruler that's just granted them a nation. Pharaoh, Cyrus, and the United Kingdom in 1948 gave them their sovereignty again. Only country, only people group in history that have ever regained sovereignty, that have ever gotten sovereignty from the word of a, another person, and they've done it three times. So it's a, a stunning distinction of the Jewish people. Um, and by the way, Cyrus and Britain created this nation with an open invitation. Anybody from anywhere on the planet that wants to come can come. So it's the only nation ever three times with an open invitation. You say, well, Egypt didn't have an open invitation. And I'd say, actually, it did. It had the other people that came with them when they left. And so all three times, not just Jews went to build the nation. Gentiles did too. So they go to build the house. What does he mean by build the house? The house would be the house or the place of worship for God. It's a rebuilding of Solomon's temple or the Lord's temple or Yahweh's temple. Uh, Cyrus sees this entirely as a religious movement. He's calling out volunteers to help with it. Uh, using the Lord God of Israel, he is God. He's clearly honoring the honorific or the titles that the Jewish people used for their God. It's unnecessary for him to do this, but it confirms and honors Yahweh as the real deal. And I, I actually think God honors that much about Cyrus. The proclamation would have been given to the Jewish people. He probably wouldn't have delivered this proclamation to the followers of sin, the Babylonian people, which is why it's in the Bible, but it's not in Babylonian records. Um, whoever is left. <laughs> Others are commanded to help with the effort, to bless the effort, but he's like, whoever's left can do this. That tells us that a lot of the Jewish people have so assimilated in Babylon, Babylonian culture after 70 years that they're unrecognizable anymore, right? Without resources, this is a failed effort. You send a bunch of straggling people out to rebuild a temple, the temple won't get built. Cyrus gets that, so he sends them with resources of his own, but he also, in order to help this go faster, because the faster they rebuild the temple, the quicker they're going to go back to planting crops and paying taxes. So it's in his interest to make this happen quickly, so he, he invites everybody else to also help them. Let the men of, this, of his place help him, commanding anybody that's Jewish, do this, and the hymn that's referenced here would be Nehemiah. 
So help him, Nehemiah becomes the governor of this situation. You have the governor, Nehemiah. You have the high priest, Ezra. You have this other guy called Zerubbabel, who is in the line of David, but he's not given authority by the Persians. That's an interesting dynamic. So you got these three people that are kind of leaders of Israel, but they don't have sovereignty even between the three of them. They replace any Babylonian governors that were in this region. So it goes from Babylonian rule to Persian rule under Jewish um, governors. Um, the Jewish then come home with this proclamation in hand. They take full authority uh, in the name of Persia, and they kick out the Babylonian governors that would have been there. This wouldn't have been a pretty scene. We don't have a record of it. But I want that scene. At some point in heaven, I'm going to go to the libraries and say, I'd like to watch the video record of them kicking out the Babylonian governors. I think that would be fun. But that's just me. All documented, over-the-top documentation. This is how God works. And I know you guys are like, man, that was a lot of prophecy review tonight. Extravagant accuracy when God's moving in the history of the world. And just this idea that when God's going to make a turn or change things historically, we get complete accuracy, very public. This is how God always has worked in the history of the world. He does it publicly. He does it historically. He leaves no doubt, and he leaves a written record behind. And in this case, not only a Jewish written record, but a Persian written record, and all these other empires, they have various records that record this moment in history. Isaiah 45, 19, God says, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. That's a rip on the Babylonians. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, see me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So he even says this about himself. God's not a secret place as God. So if you have somebody that says, God told me this in a back room and I have tablets to prove it, be, be cautious with that kind of thing. God doesn't operate like that. He's always operated extremely publicly in the history of the world. So to ignore the miracle of prophecy would be foolish on Cyrus's part. That's my point. Be absolutely foolish. To see all of this and ignore it, you would either have to not read it, be ignorant as heck. And I think the enemy loves when the church doesn't know the scriptures. He loves it. Because that's one of the major ways to not listen to God is not even know what he says in the first place. Never read the prophecies. Or two, read them, but willfully choose to ignore them and create an elaborate alternative theory to justify your decision. And we see a ton of that right now. The unpacking of bad teaching or misleading teaching that essentially justifies ignoring what God clearly says, I think that at some point people are held to account for that. Or, here's the third alternative. Read what he says and take him at his word. He's not making things up for, to confuse us. He's giving clear prophecy and directions so that we can follow it. Here's verse 5. We will get through the chapter. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and all whose spirits God had moved arose to go up and build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. Not all Jewish people left Babylon. God's sifting and filtering his people. The only people that return to Israel are people that are committed. I think this is a great image of salvation, to be honest. Um, three tribes are mentioned specifically. Judah, Benjamin, Levites. Three tribes. How many tribes were there? Twelve. Three-fourths of the tribes aren't even mentioned. It's not because they didn't have Reubenites go back with them. It's because there wasn't enough of them to note them as a house. 
So it, it, we get some indications on how few people came back. He names the largest remaining tribes, but there is other there. It says, with all whose spirits God had moved, meaning people that in addition to these three tribes came back to. So we should take note of that. However, this is part of the myth of like missing tribes. Have you ever heard those kinds of things? There's the lost tribes. They never got lost. There's no place in the Old Testament where a tribe was lost, right? They may have diminished in size or there might only be a remnant left, but we know exactly what happened to all the tribes. There's no mystery, mysterious 12th tribe of the Jews hiding out in, in, in some cave somewhere. Um, during Hezekiah and Josiah's Passovers, invitations were sent to all the remaining tribes. Hezekiah saw some, 2 Chronicles 30, 11. Josiah saw all tribes represented in his Passover. 2 Chronicles 35, 18. The priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. All whose spirits had moved. I think God would have called people from all the tribes, but in smaller numbers which we're going to see. General inclusion, not just of 12 tribes, but the we're going to see later the allied group called the Nethanim or the Gibeonites come with. This is cool. Back in Joshua's day, remember the Gibeonites? They, they had like a ruse so they wouldn't have to get sent out of the land. And they kind of played Joseph and Joseph's like, oh, you got me. And they're like, yeah, but we're happy to be wood carriers and water carriers for the God Yahweh. We'll, instead of moving out of the Holy Land, we'll convert to be Yahweh worshipers. And here's what's cool. Like, these people are still hanging with the Jewish people. Like, they never left. They got grafted into the empire, and God's always had a place for them. And I, in chapter 2, we're going to see some really cool stuff with them. Um, but also, all whose spirits God moved, that could include Persians and Babylonians that had been influenced by true worshipers of God. With this proclamation and, the, and what's written here, there is room for other people to come along with them. To, all they got to do is be willing to build the house of Yahweh. That's the only criteria that's required here. This is kind of cool. That means it was worth their time to tell people about Yahweh for 70 years in Babylon. You live in a nation where the government isn't Christ following. It is worth your time to share your faith with other people. Those people can come with you when it's time to go. When they left Egypt, it was the same thing. Here's the passage on that. Exodus 12, 37. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children, and they had a mixed multitude that went up with them also. Like Egyptians came with them and became part of the nation. A remnant, a mixed remnant, few, but anybody that was spirit-moved was welcome into the kingdom. It's amazing that the Pharisees start getting Jew-centric later on. There's nothing in their history that was Jewish-centric. There's always an open door, and we see that example here too. God had moved as a conditional also. God did a work. There was no military campaign, no gimmicks. He just stirred people's hearts, and they said, I want to move. I think it'd be interesting if they start colonizing Mars. Like, if God says, no, I want some Christians on Mars, and he stirs people up, and it's like, I will leave everything behind, and I will go be a colonist on Mars. I think when they found the new land, and, and there were some Christians that said, I need to go help found a city in the new world. And in throughout history, God has stirred up his people to feel a spiritual call to go establish community in other places. And, and, I, and I don't know that he's done doing that. Um, you know, if he chooses to tarry, there could be those instances again. You know, under the ocean colonies, moon colonies, things like that. 
you know, and, and I think there will be people where God stirs up their spirit like Cyrus and he will move some people to say, that's my calling. I want to go be a pioneer and do that. It's a special calling. Missionaries, I think, get a similar calling to that. He stirs them and they're like, I need to go to this place and meet people and build relationships. So they arose to go up and build. Not only did they stand up, they stood up to go do work, right? If you're a couch surfer, this is hard to understand. The unifying factor for Israel at this point in history is A, that they're God's people, they've been stirred by God, but B, they're willing to work. Because there's, it's voluntary, it's a hard journey. We're going to see that they go mostly on foot. It's extremely hard work to do construction in the ancient world, right? They usually used slaves for this. There is no clear plan or agenda. They know nothing other than build the temple. But I, we don't even know that they have architectural plans for that. There are major obstacles that they're going to run into. They need skill to do this, and they need resources from non-Jewish people, the Persians, to help to do this. And they even need permission to do it. And there's no existing Jewish culture where they're headed. They have to establish culture, and they're going to do this successfully. There will not be idol worship in Israel from this point unto today. Right? They just don't do idol worship ever again. This is a massive task. Take another shot at God's promises. This time, try to do it right. Who's moved to do that? They also saw this, the tools of the people, people, things that needed to be put on, and they see how empty the gods are in Babylon. And even Marduk, I think the Jewish people see through it. You know, the end result of idol worship is whoever's in power tells us what this, this fake God says. But the Jewish people realize our God's beyond that, outside of that system. So I think in Babylon they saw how empty all of this was, and they're willing to leave the earthly comfort of Babylon to take off and go build a new society. And this is what believers in God, God's people do all the time throughout history. He, un, he unloads us on new places to build cultures and new spots. That's not to be against culture. It is to establish a culture, a culture that's reverent to God. So this is what God said. By the way, he called this shot too. Isaiah 44, do you still have your thumb there? Verse 9, those who make an image, all of them are useless and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. In other words, the Jewish people saw for themselves how empty this garbage was. And Marduk really makes it all look stupid. Let's be honest. Even the Romans didn't believe in the Roman pantheon very much. It was a, a toy for kids. And they saw it that way. That's why we see Greek and Roman mythology is so harmless. They kind of saw it that way too. It was an instrument of power that most of them didn't even believe in themselves. So it just makes it look foolish. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may, that they may be ashamed. They're going to go to Babylon. They're going to see things that make idol worship just look like embarrassing. And that's, I think, indeed... False worship is kind of purged. What they fall on the other side of is um, they get another challenge, another obstacle to God, which is selfishness and comfort. And that becomes the true enemy of God is opulence and, 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 and self-righteousness, which is what we see by Jesus' time. This becomes the reflection of living for the Lord, I think. When God calls us, we can choose the comfort or the captivity of the world or we can choose to arise and go follow Jesus. Right? Simple choice. It's a voluntary choice. There's not a lot promised for us, and there's not a lot of 
clarity around what following Jesus means when we make that decision, but something stirs our hearts to know it's the right thing to do. Or we can, we can pack it up and be serious about following Jesus and take on the hardships, the journey, the work, all for the joy of the Lord because we want to see his name be elevated on this earth. We want to build something that honors our God and it's worth our lives to hope for the glory of the Lord. And the people that leave Babylon, this is a really cool crew of people. They're probably still hanging out in heaven together. Like these people would be bonded and tight. They would have great community because they're looking around the room seeing a room full of people that would rather follow Yahweh than be comfortable back in Babylon. Because the comfort of this world is a prison. But the danger and the adventure of following Jesus is true freedom. So you can be a slave to the world, even if it makes you comfort, or you can go and follow and move with God and reject what the world has to offer. And so this image of, of Israel being called out of Babylon but it's voluntary. What an amazing mirror of what Jesus calls us to in salvation. It's very, very similar. And a very small remnant of people do this. Uh, verse 6, And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. People actually respond to Cyrus and, and they offer, hey, if you guys are willing to go, we want to bless you and help you do that. Um, this is interesting. It means some of the people that stayed in Babylon actually wanted to help support this effort to build the temple. There are some believers that go and there's some believers that stay. And woe for us to judge where their hearts were at, right? We know something about the people willing to go, but what about those people willing to stay and support the effort? Um, the ancient currency is metal. That's why they say silver and gold. Um, they know that Judah is, it has nothing there. There's, so there's no import or trade or economy going on in Israel at this time. There are simply trade routes going north, south, east, west. Um, we know about Israel geographically that if it's not tended properly, it turns into dust and rocks. But when it's tended properly, it gets really good sun. And it can be really fruitful. Uh, the writers here point out in verse 6 that it was willingly offered. There's no compulsion. There's no arm twisting. It, there's a clear condition of these people being willing. Um, it says, besides all, this is not tithing. This is different from tithing. Um, tithing is commanded by God. These offerings are clearly indicated as free will offerings. So they would do whatever tithing they would do in Judaism. But this is on top of those things they gave freely. God's people give first here, and then Cyrus steps in, and he supports the effort too. Verse 7, uh, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord. Hey, look at these. <sighs> Seventy years in an old room somewhere, but they still look like your stuff, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. So the idea is they would steal things from other temples, and then they'd lay them before their gods to submit them before. Um, and and the, the dark places would be that they did a lot of this in basements where little creepy crawlers could crawl all over that stuff and make them defiled. So they would have to probably, Cyrus would have cleaned these up and gotten the, the bat feces and the snake skins and he would have cleaned this stuff up probably before handing it to the Jews or that would have been offensive. Um, so in King Cyrus of Persia brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer. In other words, somebody is caring for this process and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Sounds like a good young adult novel. 
2 Kings 24, 13 says that these articles of the temple were cut in pieces. Here it says they're just brought out. Um, the word cut in pieces in 2 Kings, some people say that means cut off. Either way, they're bringing the gold and silver that belonged to the temple back to the Jewish people. And so even if they chopped them into pieces in 2 Kings 24, that's a hard way to transport things if you don't break it down. The other thing that commentators uh, point out on this is there's zero mention of the larger articles. There's no mention of the cart, the lava, the ocean, the, the Ark of the Covenant, or the lampstand that goes in the temple, or the table for the showbread. So it could be that those bigger pieces were broken down because when you get the list of objects here in the next few verses, you don't see any of those larger objects. So, uh, you know, the Word of God says both. There is a strong possibility it could be both. The bigger objects were broken down and the smaller objects were easy. You can transport a pile of dishes fairly easily. So dishes don't need to be broken down. They're already in small pieces. The key element here is the pieces perspective. Um, Cyrus undoes the insult of Nebuchadnezzar to the degree that he can undo it. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar did wrong by you guys. I want to make peace with Yahweh. And frankly, Cyrus did not need the money. He was crazy rich. So this is kind of nothing for Cyrus to just give all of these people back those things that helped with their worship. So his treasurer oversees the process, indicating uh, accountability and, and an ethical treatment of the Jews here. Um, above and beyond, he doesn't have to do this. God never commanded Cyrus to do all of this. So it's interesting that God not only believes the prophecies, honors the prophecies, but he kind of goes above and beyond to bless the Jewish people. He's stirred up to be a blessing to them instead of a curse. And you put this against Pharaoh in the Exodus account, this is a whole different story. And you think, man, Pharaoh has to be kicking himself in hell thinking, I could have done it that way. And I would have been blessed instead of what happened to me and the Egyptians. Um, but he counted them out. There's a respect and accounting. This would have been a large ceremony where the Jews were given dignity before everybody in Babylon. They were captives, but now they're literally counting things out like Cyrus owes them money. And the balances are being set right. And this would have reinstated the Jewish people as legitimate, it would have given them, it would have honored their identity as a people and as a culture. Um, Cyrus is just doing some pretty amazing things. Then verse 9, not only did they count them out, we're going to prove that. This is the number of them, and we get a recording of this in the scriptures. A careful recording, which is an earmark of Persian accounting, uh, administrative care, um, and it's also an earmark of Jewish recording. This is how the Jews, so th there's some similar cultural treatment here. Not only an accounting passage, I think when we see stuff like this in the Word of God, it's also a celebration. Every one of those dishes has been buried for 70 years. This is like burying a time capsule and then digging it up 70 years later, and you're like, oh, you know, the old fogies would have been going, I remember those dishes. I saw them when I was a kid. And the younger people would be like, cool, artifacts. Like what, you know, it's been 70 years and these things come out of storage. I th this is a celebration of just how God has maintained everything, even though they thought it was lost. 30 gold platters, a thousand silver platters, 29 knives. Like who's stealing the knives? There, there aren't enough knives to match the plates. 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, 1,000 other articles. All the articles, and I think that might be the broken pieces. 
that Kings mentions, all of the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All of these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Uh, Sheshbazar there is another, is the Babylonian name for Zerubbabel, the Jewish name. And we, we know that that happens. We can get into that next chapter. Cyrus not only believed God, he actually sent the people and he blessed them with artifacts and treasures. Everything is restored to the people. Um, everything but one thing, sovereignty. The Jewish people don't get their sovereignty back. They're able to have some self-governance, but it's under the Persian Empire, under the Greek Empire, under the Roman Empire, under the Abbasid dynasty, under the Ottoman Empire, under the British Empire, until 1948, they're given their sovereignty again. But they never have had sovereignty in that land. Neither has anybody else, by the way. Those are the, those are the empires that have ruled that part of the world. What's the catch? Grow and prosper, Israelites, and pay me my taxes. At the end of the day, I think Cyrus is just a pragmatist. And God uses him, and he honors that, and he works in that way. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Israel, and he replaces all of them. He gives everything back because he doesn't want a debt with Yahweh. So theologically, this clears, like, we're all even now. Because he sees how easily Babylon was beat up. I think something in him knew that he was helped from the spiritual world to make that happen. Maybe he doubted he could take Babylon, and then the door just literally opened before him. And he sees these prophecies, and he gets it, and he's like, I want everything settled with Yahweh. I don't want to mess with this God. And so he clears the plate, he sets them up, and we get this story for the ages. Like, this is how it happened. No battle. Just go and have your land back. Paul, how are we doing on time? Uh, we're done. We're done for tonight? <laughs> All right, we're done for tonight. Let's say a word of prayer. Uh, dear Lord and King, thank you for your word. Um, thank you, Lord, for um, just a family of brothers and sisters that love digging into your word every week. Uh, we're so blessed by what you've given us. What The gift you've given us in the Old Testament is better than any of the silver or gold that the Jews got returned to them. We thank you for every nugget, every piece, every particle, every word that you said is, is given for our instruction and for our teaching and for our learning. Lord, we just love what you've put before us. Thank you. Lord, forgive us for any trespasses we have against you. And Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus to settle the scales for us. Um, Lord, we want we don't want any wicked way in us. We don't want anything that it makes us culpable. So Lord, just search our hearts, know them, and help us to be pure and honorable before you. Teach us your ways. Um, teach us to follow you, to lead us beside still waters, to bring us to the to a grassy lee so that we can uh, eat the bread of your word, Lord, and, and be part of your fellowship. Lord, fill us with your spirit, honor us with your presence, and help us, Lord, to do the work you've called us to do, to arise and go build. Lord, all of us go back to the rest of our lives tomorrow morning. Help us to do it with just the attitude of hope that we can't wait to see what you're going to build next. So, Lord, each person we run into this week, each place we go, Lord, may we make it consecrated unto you. May we make each of those conversations something that will honor you and elevate um, your glory on this earth. In Jesus' name.